Good morning. It's good to be back with you all this week. Uh, as many of you know, Lorinda and I went on a little vacation uh, for, for the weekend last week, and uh, we had a great time. Uh, we really enjoyed ourselves, but it's, it's nice to come home, and it's nice to be with our church family today. Um, I want to thank Ben for uh, offering our lesson last week. I, I listened to it twice. Uh, I thought it was so fantastic, and there was a lot of really good material uh, that he shared with us. It was very encouraging to me to think about the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, one of the points he made that I, I want to share with you that I... I feel like I've got kind of a weird quality to my tone this morning. I'm good. Ben gives me the thumbs up. I'm good. Uh, the, the idea that Jesus specifies who he's calling out of the tomb, that was, that was a really profound and powerful idea to me, that Jesus' call to the ones in the tomb would have been powerful enough to draw them all out. Um, and now I know I'm too loud. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting about that is this idea that Jesus calls us specifically to life. Um, and that's just been resonating with me all week. The idea that, that Jesus is not, uh, he's, he's indiscriminate with his grace, his mercy. He wants to give it to everyone, but he has called us specifically too. Uh, that, that my name is a name that Jesus has called. I, I want to thank you for that, Ben. This morning, we are looking a little bit forward from where Ben was last week. Uh, we're going to skip to chapter 12, and we'll get back to chapter 11 for just a moment at the end of our, our lesson today. Uh, but before we're back, um, Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8, starting in verse 5, says, Moses said to the assembly, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. He also fastened the ephod with a decorative waistband, which he tied around him. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the urim and thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred emblem, on the front of it as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basins with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, and fastened caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. The book of Leviticus is sometimes a little strange for us. We, we go to it and we find ourselves overwhelmed or confused or uh, just feeling as though this is a very foreign subject. Uh, all these sacrifices that are described and cleansing processes and ways in which the people of Israel might set themselves apart from the nations around them. It can be language that's difficult for us to incorporate into our day-to-day -day speech. But it's a significant book in understanding a number of things about the life of Jesus. If we read through the book of Leviticus and then we go and we read the life story of Jesus, what we end up finding is that very often the things Jesus does, the things Jesus says, the ways in which he acts, draw specifically from the book of Leviticus. 
there are allusions throughout the entire thing to the life of Jesus. And, and as we read, especially about the anointings and the implements of worship that the Israelite people are using and called to use, we start to see these little foreshadowings of who Jesus is and what he will do. If you remember when we began the Gospel of John, one of the first things I pointed out is that John tells us that Jesus came and tabernacled, made his tent, dwelt among us. And I think John uses that terminology very specifically to begin drawing our mind to the idea that Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of God with us. The book of Leviticus, here where we've read this morning, is the beginning of the practice of the religious system of Judaism. And it begins with certain implements and individuals being anointed for a purpose. You you probably heard me emphasize the word consecrated multiple times in the, the passage that we've just read, that something was anointed and it was consecrated by its anointing. Sometimes I think we fail to understand what anointing means. If you, if you read through the Old Testament, it sounds kind of strange. You know, they took oil and they poured it on top of someone's head, and then they said a blessing over that individual. And we'd think, what does the oil have to do with all this other stuff? And why, why is it that to become king, you have to be anointed? Why is it that if I'm going to offer a sacrifice, I need to be anointed? Why does the altar need to be anointed? Why do all these different things need to be anointed? The anointing was part of a cleansing process, part of a signifying process. It was setting apart. It was saying, this thing now has purpose and intent that it did not have before. Or, I am recognizing the purpose and intent that God had for this thing, this person, all along. It's both a recognition of and a commission to a specific task and a work. In fact, anointing is perhaps one of the most significant things we can understand about the person of Jesus. When we are introduced to Jesus through the annunciation, the the proclamation of his soon-to-be arrival, the revelation to Mary, the revelation to Joseph of the impending birth of our Lord and Savior, what we are told about him is that he will be the Christ or the Messiah. These words literally mean anointed. This is the title that he's given. It's the title that he's referred to most frequently by, the anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, there are many that might bear that name, a Messiah or a Christ. They are individuals who are anointed to a purpose, but there was long promised an individual who would be not just a a Messiah, a Christ, but would be the Messiah, the Christ the one with the ultimate purpose. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and is titled the Messiah, the Christ, we are supposed to recognize that this is a big moment. This is someone not with just a purpose, but with the purpose. The one that all of history has been looking forward to, longing for, expecting to come about. And the Israelite people understand that if something or someone has a purpose, they should be anointed to that purpose. 
And that's what draws us to our text this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I've always wondered, uh, you know, I'm particularly sensitive to floral smells and things like that. Uh, if I go to the mall and we walk by the bed, uh, not Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, Bath & Body Works shop, like it overwhelms me. It's wafting out the door. Like I have to stand a good 10 to 15 feet back from the entrance of the store. I wonder if maybe that's what it means here when it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Like I couldn't have possibly been in there without being overwhelmed, getting lightheaded. But maybe, maybe what we're supposed to understand here is this idea of the filling, the spreading out. See, uh, the interesting thing about the story of the anointing of Jesus is that we have several stories of the anointing of Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, each Gospel has a story about Jesus being anointed. Um, And there's debate over whether or not there were two instances in which Jesus was anointed, or if there was just one instance told in multiple perspectives. There's debate whether or not, uh, you know, which which of these line up best with one another. Uh, Maybe it's just different perspectives on a single story. Maybe it's the... the, authors placing things in specific ways so as to draw and highlight ideas that are uh, significant to them. Um, If you take a look at your Bibles, you're going to see that Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 38, has an account of an anointing of Jesus. Mark chapter 14, verse 3, Mark is always very brief in his details, so he gets one verse for the specifics about the anointing itself, one verse. And Matthew 26, verse 6 through 7, which is very similar to Mark's account of an anointing of Jesus. And if you go and you look at these anointings, what you're going to find is that they share one thing in common. Actually, a couple of things in common, but one that I want to highlight for just a moment. The individual who anoints Jesus is a woman. This is very peculiar for the Gospels to include for a number of reasons. If you go back into the Old Testament and you look for anointing stories, the individuals that do the anointing are almost always the high priests or Moses or the prophet. These are individuals that are given the task to anoint. In fact, as we read in Leviticus chapter 8 this morning, Moses is given the duty of anointing not just the individuals who will serve in the tabernacle, but essentially the entire tabernacle and all the implements that are to be used in it themselves. That's Moses' job. Aaron can't consecrate anything else until Aaron has been consecrated. Now, Aaron is going to do a lot of consecrating. There's going to be sacrifices brought to him so that he can consecrate them and then offer them on behalf of the individuals who have brought the sacrifice. We read that throughout the remainder of the book of Leviticus. In fact, actually leading up to chapter 8, we see a number of sacrifices that are described in detail, which Aaron will eventually offer. 
But Aaron can't offer those sacrifices until he's been consecrated, and the one who consecrates him is Moses. Moses, the lawgiver. Moses, the one who stands on top of the mountain in the presence of the Lord, whose face glows with the presence of God. Moses, the one that would be revered by the people for generations to come. That in many ways we revere. We look at him and we say, this is a good man. This is a man who did much of what God called him to do. And yes, he had his shortcomings and his failings as an individual, but he was God's man. When we see uh, the kings of Israel anointed, specifically Saul and David, it's done by the prophet, the man that God has set aside for this task. When we read about the later kings of Israel who are anointed, the high priest comes to do the job. This is the job of the highest figure in the land. And the Gospels, only account of the anointing of Jesus, are women who come in a very lowly state to anoint Jesus. Now, I want to be really clear here. Kyle and I discussed this months back. Jesus is not just anointed by women. Jesus is anointed by the Father for the purpose of being the Savior of the world. In fact, we could say that when the the heavens open during his baptism and the uh, dove descends, the Spirit descends like a dove, that that is, in fact, an anointing. God says, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. The only people... The only human beings, the only flesh and blood individuals who see fit to anoint Jesus are women. And I wonder what that says to us in the Gospels, what we're supposed to take from that. Because if Jesus was anointed multiple times throughout his life, it would seem that you'd want to draw as many times as you possibly could to the idea that everywhere Jesus went and everyone who met Jesus recognized not only that he was the Christ, but then they did the thing that you would do to the Christ. You would anoint him. But I think contained in the stories themselves is a recognition of why there is no other record of Jesus being anointed except those records of Jesus being anointed by women. Chapter 12, verse 5 of John. One of the disciples speaks up. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? If you read the accounts of the women who anointed Jesus, what you will find is that there's always someone who wants to challenge what's been done. You've been so reckless. Don't you know how much money that was worth? Why would you do this? What are you thinking? There's always one. In some cases, as this morning, it's Judas. In other cases, it's a man named Simon. It's a Pharisee. Why did you do this? 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, John makes it really specific and clear. He says, look, the reason Judas was so concerned about the money was that, hey, if they'd sold it, you know, they'd put the money in the bag, and then Judas, who liked to help himself to the funds, would take some of the money out, and maybe he'd go spend it on himself. And he also notes that Judas is already prepared to betray Jesus, that this is something that's going to happen. Why? Have you done this? And you know, it's never one of the other disciples that pipes up and says, hey, you know, the reason she's done this is because this is the anointed one. This is what you do when someone has a purpose. This is what you do when someone has a task that is to be done that has been given to them by God. Let me make a defense of her. Now remember that We've already had an account in the Gospels before this point in the life of Jesus where Peter declares very boldly, you are the Christ. But Peter doesn't stand up and say, no, you know what? I'm surprised none of us have done this yet. Why haven't we anointed the anointed one? Why haven't we recognized that the right thing to do for him and his purpose is to anoint him? Because let me be really clear. All the people in Leviticus chapter 8, when they get together at the tabernacle, they already know what the purpose of the tabernacle is. You don't need to consecrate it to communicate to them that this is what the tabernacle is for, that this is what the altar is for, that this is what the bowl is for, that this is what the priest is for. You consecrate them because that's what you do not so that you can communicate to everybody who already knows what its purpose is, is. If something is consecrated or to be consecrated, we consecrate it. We anoint it. We recognize the purpose that God has intended for it. And for three years of Jesus' ministry, these 12 men who follow him around Because they believe he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Don't anoint him. But Mary does what you do to those things which God has a purpose for, a plan an intent, a great and grand task. It's never the disciples who pipe in and say, no, this was the right thing to do. But Jesus, whoop, that's too far. Jesus pipes up and he says, two versions here, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, I like the NIV here. I I tend to use the English Standard Version, but I really like the NIV here because I think it draws out what Jesus is actually saying. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Jesus isn't being buried this day. We know that. But this is the beginning of the Passover, This is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. 
This is the beginning of what Jesus is about to do, his great work, the thing which he has set his heart toward, the thing that God has planned from the foundations of the world. And as the Passover is about to begin, Jesus is being consecrated for the purpose that the Passover was always intended to fulfill. This is what you do. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. This is what is right. From the foundations of the world, I was the Messiah. I was the Christ. And this was always supposed to happen. Now, if you go read the other accounts, there's a little bit of a suggestion that, like, you know, the poor will always be with you, but I'm only here for a short time. Jesus actually literally uses those words, but the suggestion there, I think, is this this question to them, to the disciples, to the objector in the room specifically. You say that you would go take care of the poor with the money that you've, you've received from selling this perfume. But the poor have always been with you. Where was your care for them yesterday, before we had the perfume? And more importantly, do you recognize that I am only here a short while? At some point, the anointing has to happen. Why didn't you think to do this. I wonder if maybe this is the question that ultimately Jesus is getting to with us. Why didn't we think to anoint him? Now maybe you have, maybe at many times in your life you've you've spiritually anointed Jesus. You have proclaimed him set for a purpose, a task. Now, keep in mind, if you have been baptized into the body of Christ, you have also been anointed with a purpose. In fact, that's one of the big messages of the book of Acts, is that we are set aside, we are consecrated for a good work that God has intended for us. We share now in the consecration of Christ toward the work that Christ had begun. This is Paul's idea that we are uh, heirs to the ministry of reconciliation, have we anointed Jesus in our lives? We, we may walk around a lot and say, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but I don't want to anoint him because doing so might mean that I have to accept that what he says is what's going to happen. Because remember, there are a number of his apostles, a number of the, the disciples who are not yet apostles, who are convinced that Jesus is kind of talking like a crazy man when he talks about his own death, that they're convinced that Jesus can't possibly be consecrated towards the thing that he says he's consecrated toward. They'd like to consecrate him towards sitting on a physical throne, to taking up a position of power in this world. And if they consecrated him, that might be what they're trying to consecrate him toward, what they're trying to anoint him toward. But if they've heard the words of Jesus clearly... If they've heard what it is he said he's come to do, if they'd witnessed very recently his wrestling with the powers of death and darkness, they might have to accept that what Jesus has been consecrated for is something very different than what they had imagined. 
And I wonder if sometimes we fall into that same trap. That I want Jesus to be the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one, for me and my purposes and to sanctify my own thoughts and intents. But I don't want to consecrate him for power over death for others necessarily. I like my image of Jesus and not so much Jesus' image of Jesus. And if I consecrate him, if I anoint him, I have to accept what his vision of himself is. Not necessarily the immediate removal of the difficulties and trials of today, the solving of the issue of the poor, but the grand and more difficult-to-comprehend task of the consecration of my heart for eternity. Previous chapter of John. After many people have witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, and people are getting really excited about it, and people are arguing with one another about what this means, there is an interaction between the most significant individuals in the entirety of the Israelite religion. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So this high priest, without even intending to, lays bare the truth of what Jesus has come to do the thing he is consecrated for, that one man would die for the nation. And John extrapolates from there, not just the nation, but for all. But the high priest doesn't anoint Jesus. In his own words, the prophecy that God has given to him in his position, he fails to anoint Jesus to the task. So God brings a woman to do the job. The high priest is going to recognize what Jesus is here to do, but he's not going to consecrate him toward the task. So you know what? I'll have someone else do it. And it's Mary. Who comes and sits at his feet and washes them and dries them with her hair. This morning, I want to ask you this. Do you know what Jesus is consecrated for? What his purpose is? Why he came? And is it a very narrow view of why Jesus came? Do you want him to give you political victory? Do you want him to make you wealthy? Do you want him to deal with you know, the people in your life that are kind of inconvenient, like those poor individuals that are sitting on the side of the road that you just wish... If only they were wealthy so that I wouldn't have to deal with them on a daily basis. Let's sell all this, the, the nard and we'll you know, put them all in little houses so I don't have to see them anymore. 
Is that what you think Jesus was consecrated for? Or was it for something more so that the whole nation might live? So that life might be given to the multitudes? And if that's the case, are you prepared to consecrate, to anoint, to recognize what it is that Jesus has done and then confess him as Lord and follow him in that way? Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we are like Mary, that we recognize the significance of the moment that we are in, that we recognize the Lord that we follow, that we proclaim him as Christ, and then we anoint him to the task and the purpose. Not to our design, not to our vision, but to the purpose that you have intended for him from the very beginning, the foundation of the world, that we might be reclaimed, that others might be reclaimed, and that we might be given eternal life. Not on our terms, not for our comfort, but instead for your purpose. This morning, I pray that for each of us, that we reflect on the Jesus that we have have followed, the, the words he has said, the ways in which he has challenged us, and that we consecrate him, and we consecrate ourselves to him. Father, I pray this morning that you help us to remember that we don't get to decide who Jesus was. We don't get to decide what his great mission and work was. We can only recognize it. And then we can commit ourselves to the same. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to encourage you to uh, be mindful of a number of things. And uh, then then we're going to move forward in our service. There is a card at the back of the auditorium. Uh, As many of you know, Sue Boyd has been facing a number of medical issues uh, for, for quite a while now. Uh, And Sue's had a particularly difficult week. She was in the hospital for a little while. At the back of the auditorium, there's a card. And I just encourage you to go and write a thoughtful uh, note in there. This was was Ev's idea, actually. And uh, I think it would be fantastic for Sue to receive words of encouragement from her church family. Um, I want to encourage you to put the things we're consecrated for, to care for the sick, to care for those uh, who are, are in need. This is part of our purpose. And we've been anointed for this task. And so uh, at the end of service today, if you can take just a moment to fill out the card for Sue, that would be fantastic. We're going to stand and we're going to worship at this time.